and welcome to another episode of the Girl Guide Association. I am Lauren. And I'm Mary. And we are the Girl Guides. And this is a show where we just talk about things gothic. So this is this is still quite new. We're still getting used to it. But the idea of the Girl Guide Association is that we pick a topic, something that you know is related to the gothic or something that gets neglected but is very gothic and we we tell each other about it we talk about the history why it's important why it's gothic eventually I will come up with a more succinct introduction for this show but while we are getting used to it this is what you're getting so deal with it guys so this is another episode of the Girl Guide Association and today Dr Mary Going the newly minted will be taking control and I believe this is going to be a multiple parter so buckle up you guys yes so before I reveal like the topic of the episode I just want to say Lauren do you remember way back when we were like having this idea of different Mm -hmm. like shows that we could do Mm -hmm. and I was like oh I really love this one band and I really want to do an episode on this one band and if anyone knows Lauren and I like we have slightly different music tastes (laughs) sometimes they overlap Lauren's is definitely more eclectic and varied. Um, you 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 like a wide variety of music, yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. <laughs> and and at some point, I'm looking forward to delving into your music tastes and and why some of the the artists that you like are gothic. Um, but for me, I um <laughs> I, I tend to just like stuff with guitars. Um, <laughs> I feel like you are like a like a canonical. Like you like stuff that is, you know, that like goes hand in hand with with the specialism that we have and the research that we do. And the the Venn diagram of Lauren and Mary, there is quite a like a shared middle section that is mostly sort of like 2004 to 2008, kind of like emo, screamo, hardcore, like, um, but yeah, you, your music taste, I mean, I still think your music taste is very eclectic, because within the genres that you like, you like a lot of really interesting bands, but yeah, you, I think, you, you have the, like, credentials, like, I, I kind of am sometimes a bit like, <laughs> you know, people are like, hey, what did you do, and I'm like, I went to see Taylor Swift, <laughs> Which is which is totally fine. That's a legitimate thing to do. Like yeah. you know. So yeah, but I I think this I think I because you know I, we've talked about this. I know what you're going to talk about today. I don't know much about it, so I am excited. But I think this is going to be a really interesting series because I think this is going to be one of those things that people go. Of course, this is gothic. Of course, this is connected to the gothic. But actually. I don't know if we all think about how, where it comes mm-hmm. from, and why it's so culturally significant. So I'm looking forward to you talking about this. Oh, excellent. So, so yeah, my, my music taste is, is basically just very heavy. So today's episode is going to be a, a gothic history of heavy metal, part one. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously if I'm doing a history of an entire musical genre, it's <laughs> way too big to fit into one episode. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna dive into some of the origins today, and then some of the kind of like early early gothic underpinnings. Um, and, and, I like that underpinning. Yeah, that's a great word. <laughs> <laughs> and I think as well, what's really interesting is so obviously like adjacent to this, you have like goth music, mm-hmm. which are, sometimes have a has a little overlap with metal. But like I've never really been into like goth music, like you know the Cure or like Bauhaus and stuff. And I think a lot of people, when you think of like 
what would a gothic academic listen to people think like goth music oh yeah like all of that kind of like mm-hmm. you know cure stuff and and well yeah and like there's very like much there's very much that I I always think of even though it's very pop like the new romantics mm-hmm. like yeah that very kind of 80s like the white blouses and makeup and like the cure and Bauhaus obviously kind of like interlinked to that and you know they're kind of all part of a similar scene but but not the same thing yeah yeah and and if you are a fan of goth music then I do have to apologize then this this episode is not gonna talk about that at all (laughs) I'm just gonna talk about heavy metal Uh, but you know hopefully you'll stick around um and and maybe find some new bands that 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 you might want to check out so to start with you know just to just to kind of acknowledge that it is always hard to pinpoint like exactly when like new like you know music genres or film trends or like generic modes in fiction originate um everything has to begin somewhere but it's always a little (laughs) bit it's always a little bit fuzzy isn't it like yes and often things start at the same time in multiple different places exactly exactly so like I guess I guess with gothic we've all kind of decided that we can say gothic starts with Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto but there's lots of stuff like before before that book came out that that we can now look at and see well this is gothic so I think I'm just going to take that kind of approach and be like yes there are obviously like stuff that comes before and around the same time but I'm gonna have a kind of kind of fuzzy definitive origin kind of band and also part of that is that it appropriates and you know (laughs) you know cultivates existing things which again is something that you know Horace Walpole did with the castle of Otranto where he took a lot of things from different places um so yeah like heavy metal obviously draws on like you know rock and roll psychedelic rock and the blues um and here just to kind of you know shout out to our episode on crossroads we do talk about the blues so if you're listening interested in learning about why the blues um is gothic i think i would check that out yeah yeah and maybe we'll put a link somewhere in the youtube video oh yeah yeah check out the link below (laughs) the link somewhere lauren and future mary have definitely put in the episode (laughs) (laughs) but for now (laughs) let's dive into heavy metal so in birmingham england in 1968 guitarist Tony Iommi, drummer Bill Ward, bassist Giza Butler, and vocalist Ozzy Osbourne formed the band Black Sabbath. Hey. <laughs> so two years later in 1970, they released their first single, Evil, followed by their self-titled debut album. And what set this apart, what set this band apart from like other bands in the 60s and then in the 70s is their dark and at times ominous musical sound. And also their occult lyrical content and aesthetics. So Lauren, I know you, you've said not as well versed as metal as I am, but if I say to you Black Sabbath, what what comes to mind? Like what immediately comes to mind? Um, the fantastic mid two thousand show, The Osbournes. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think of um, like Crazy Train, Ozzy Osbourne eating a bat, um, you know, like Tony Ioni being, so I used to play guitar, um, mm-hmm. and Tony Ioni was always the, like, lots of people's icon, like, that was who a lot of people were, like, aspiring to be, um, and I do think even 
obviously metal is a global genre but I think being British in particular because they come from Birmingham and because they're like an institution there's also that kind of like cultural awareness but yeah I think mostly um when I think Black Sabbath I think pentagrams biting the heads off bath <laughs> and the song crazy train I don't know is it even is that what the song is called or is that just the, the like refrain yeah yeah so um obviously Black Sabbath has a kind of um, interesting history especially their relationship with their singers um so Ozzy is the first singer they also then got um James Dio when they kicked Ozzy out <laughs> um and then Ozzy has gone on to have like a really really like good solo career so quite a lot of the songs that you named uh including Crazy Train they're all like Ozzy songs yeah um and he owes a lot of his career to Sharon Osbourne she yeah, was an amazing manager um I have to just and- say is why she is on X Factor. And I yes. don't think anybody understood that at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. She, um, I think she managed Black Sabbath a little bit. Um, but then when when Ozzy left, she became his manager. And together, the, I mean, you can just see that the Osborne show is because of Ozzy's solo career. But obviously, it's not solo career because, you know, Sharon was managing him and he had like a, an array of like amazing like musicians behind him as well. Um but to go back to Black Sabbath, which is kind of where he kind of um, got his name got his name from, like they are a kind of similar aesthetic, and yes, like all that kind of like occult stuff and the pentagrams, um, that that's definitely like what what they started to started to bring in, um, and we are definitely going to come back to the how important it is that they come from Birmingham in in yeah. the UK. Um, so before, oh. I was just going to say, it's just occurred to me, I never realised, until you just said it, like, 1968, 1970, this is, like, completely concurrent to Anton LaVey then, isn't it? Like, this is all yeah. happening at the same time as the Church of Satan. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Becoming yeah. a thing. I yeah. never, like, obviously, and I've, I've always thought of, like, Black Sabbath as being kind of using that same imagery as as like kind of you know the beginnings of satanism and things like that but it's never clicked in my head that actually these two things are happening sort of at the same time it's a it's a counterculture um and 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 it is similar again to to kind of goth subculture as as being kind of counter to the mainstream but yeah like all of these things and as we'll we'll get into like you know horror becoming more Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. I don't know if mainstream is the wrong word, but, you know, just available and visible um, and accessible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's two types of counterculture, let's be honest. There's accessible counterculture and then there's counterculture that you only get if you know the person that can take you down the back alley and knock on the right door. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, And I think, yeah, I I always think that's really interesting with with metal, especially because I think when people think of like, especially kind of more, more gothic, countercultures again like people think about goth mm-hmm. um, but there's lots of gothic that you can find in other kinds of places like metal and also punk um, mm-hmm. and all of those kinds of things but did you know that they weren't always called black sabbath no i didn't know that yeah so they had like a couple of different names um and at one stage quite early on they went by the name earth oh interesting but there was another band called earth at the time so they were kind of like thinking, well, we need to we need to like find another another name, and and how they find that found the name like Black Sabbath is really interesting. So basically, they had this rehearsal space where they would go and and rehearse their songs um, and 
get high and all that kind of stuff. And across the road from this rehearsal space was a cinema. Oh. And one day, Giza Butler noticed that this cinema was screening the 1963 horror film Black Sabbath, which obviously starred the horror icon Boris Karloff. Yep. Um, and he saw like, you know, how so many people were just basically lining up to go and see this film. And he thought that it was strange that so many people were spending all this money to go and see scary films. But then obviously had the idea, well, why don't we do something similar? So they wanted to capitalise on that trend. So first of all, they they wrote the song Black Sabbath, uh-huh. which again, also still draws on horror stuff. So this song draws on the works of horror author, author Dennis Wheatley, but it also has a lot of things. Um, and again, I'm thinking, you know, Horace Walpole's um, Achanto. It has a, a very gothic genesis because Butler basically had a vision or a dream <laughs> of this kind of black silhouetted figure that was standing at the foot of his bed. So if you think about how important like dreams and things like that are in in Gothic, and especially in that creative process, authors will have these kinds of experiences or dreams, and then they'll work that into their their stories. And that's exactly what what they did with this song Black Sabbath. So I'm not gonna... (laughs) I'm not going to attempt to like recreate the the musical melody of this song. I'm just going to read you, <laughs> just going to read you some of the lyrics. No, Mary, sing um, it. <laughs> because I, I wish to be entertained. I would absolutely not do as well a job at this as Ozzy. Um, so just, just kind of, as you listen to these lyrics, just, I don't know, pretend that Ozzy's singing them or go and listen to the song Black Sabbath. And you, and because I think as Everybody well as the lyrics. Pause. Pause, pause, and go and this. listen to the song Black Sabbath. Go and, and listen to the song come back. And you can get you can get a real like kind of sense of like the the eerie kind of like ominous atmosphere as mm-hmm. well. Um, but anyway, so with that, thinking about that and and the the fact that like Butler had this vision of this black silhouetted figure. So it says, "What what is this that stands before me? Figure in black, which points at me. Turn round quick and start to run. Find out I'm the chosen one." Big black shape with eyes of fire, telling people their desire. Satan sitting there, he's smiling. Watches those flames get higher and higher. Oh no, no, please, God help me. So, I mean, quite spooky, even just with me reading it out. And hopefully if you have gone and listened to it, you can hear how ominous it sounds. Um, and like musically, they use quite a lot the what, what's called the tritone which is also known as the devil's interval so you have like you know Ozzy is like haunting and demonic singing and this like weird like devilish music and and that basically created their kind of gothic sound and on you know partly due to the success of this song they decided to change their name to Black Sabbath and continue making like similar music so you can go and check out, I mean, some of their videos as well, especially like, which I haven't really made any notes on, but if you go and look at some of their, like, especially from their like early albums, their music videos are really creepy and satanic and occult. And it's just yeah. that, yeah, creepy, creepy, creepy. I could go on talking about Black Sabbath for a long time. Everybody loves something slightly disturbing. Um, yeah. I feel like these are the music videos. I remember as a kid, like when you would watch like VH1, for those of you too young to remember music channels, uh, VH1 was like the slightly more established, like MTV was young and cool. 
Mm-hmm. And then VH1 was like the one that, you know, your dad listened to and watched. And often they would have like music videos from like the 80s, 70s and 80s and stuff. And I, some of them were really upsetting. I remember some of them like really like disturbing me and being like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> it was just two minutes of creepy. What happened? I need resolution. Some of them are really creepy. And, and especially because a lot of Black Sabbath songs are, I guess, fairly slow. Mm. Um they've got that whole kind of like slow creeping like ominous eerie guy and Ozzy like the reason why he one of the well one of the reasons why he's so successful now both in Black Sabbath but also as a solo artist is because his voice is very unique and creepy (laughs) like a lot of I think (laughs) because we you know because we've come to this you know we we're born well I'm like 89 you're 89 like well you know we we were born in the 90s we grew up in the 90s we are used to people like Ozzy as like older dudes like Mm -hmm. you know like my picture of Ozzy Osbourne is very much from the show the Osbournes Um, and he could still sing but he didn't have you know he wasn't as like you know good as he was and you don't always realize how good these people were in their prime also because we <laughs> we're like the children of like the emo uh period where a lot of people couldn't sing. <laughs> well a lot of people thought they could sing yes and either could <laughs> sing there was no in between was that people could either sing really really well or couldn't sing at all but he genuinely was like mm. a really talented vocal like really talented vocalist in his prime and he's still going he's got a single out now I mean he's just been in hospital um and he's written a song about I think I think I think it's called patient number nine or something he's still going um so yeah like I you know I I I like Ozzy you know I say good good on him there's there's a lot of there's a lot of fans that we're going to talk about that actually are still making music and I just find it really interesting but but we are uh, yeah I guess we're focusing on like the kind of gothic origins but okay so moving away from Black Sabbath there's one other band that I want to talk to that's like re- talk to you about <laughs> that's really important to the kind of like gothic origins of heavy metal. Okay. So I just want to see, do you have any idea what band I could be talking about? I have like inklings. Mm-hmm. My issue is that I don't know mm. when anybody debuted. Yeah. yeah. So I know in my head, I'm like, oh, these are these are bands that I would think of as being, you know, like the the dons of heavy metal or like the you know the people that really like set the tone and set the genre I have absolutely no idea when anybody started like I have no idea because <laughs> yeah like, yeah like they were you know when when we were teenagers and like learning to play guitar and stuff they were just all the established greats and I have no idea how long anyone had been around yeah when they started making music <laughs> yeah that, like, that was that I was have, a little I have no, that was no, a little I, bit of a uh, unfair question. I apologize. Yeah, I have no. So, in the the answer to the question, Mary, is there's about twenty bands I could think of, but also I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> okay, so to put you out of your misery, um, we're going to talk about Judas Priest. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, do you, do you know when Judas Priest formed? No, I have no idea. I've, if I took it, see in my head, everyone's yeah. the 80s, but I know that that's not true. <laughs> 1969. No way. So a year after Black Sabbath. And so their front man, Rob Halford, joined in 1973. So they are definitely like okay. a kind of um, 70s band. But I do think that it's interesting that like you have like these two bands forming 
around the same time. Around the same time. Do you know where Judas Priest come from? No. Birmingham, UK. <laughs> Birmingham, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, Up the Brum. <laughs> so again, like, and and I will get to this in a minute, but like Birmingham and the kind of city and the place that Birmingham is is, is really important to like the formation of, of heavy metal. And also I think what adds to its kind of gothicness. But yeah, so Rob Halford joins a few years after um, and he brings with him massive, powerful, operatic vocals. If you've listened to any Judas Priest song, like they're so difficult to sing along to because his range <laughs> and, and the power behind his voice is just so amazing. He also brought a hell of a lot of camp. Yes. Yes. Uh, Judas Priest are so camp. They're so camp. Um, so you have so you have this front man who has like this powerful operatic voice and he's very camp. And then you also have like musically, they have like this kind of distinctive double guitar sort of sound. And talking about Black Sabbath song, Black Sabbath, which we just talked about, Rob Halford said that that song is probably the most evil song ever written, which I think is one of the highest compliments that you can give when your own <laughs> band has songs like a Touch of Evil, Hell Patrol, and Necromancer. <laughs> so they are a very different band to Black Sabbath. Um, and, you know, I, I, we talked about how Black Sabbath, a lot of their songs are, are slow and creepy. A lot of Judas Priest songs are really, really fast. But they're still kind of bringing in that kind of occult and satanic lyrics and, and, and aesthetics yeah. um, and, and also like their visuals and their vocals and their guitars it's all that kind of like what we would call gothic excess it's just so extra. Judas Priest have such a specific like mm-hmm. if you if you are like watching or listening and you don't know Judas Priest google them mm-hmm. because they have such a specific aesthetic that has been so instrumental in shaping that perception yeah. don't they so so I, I just want to quickly say this um what my favorite thing about Judas Priest is that they are just undeniably camp and yeah. y- you might look back and think how did people at the time not realize that they were camp um but basically Halford um so Rob Halber the, the front man is gay but he didn't come out until 1998 yeah so we're talking about a band that that I mean they're still in the they're still, still they're still touring now, um, but really in their prime in the seventies and the eighties. But throughout all of that time, nobody, even his bandmates, didn't really know. But yeah. he consciously worked into the band's look and aesthetic: leather and spikes and yeah. motorcycles. So these are all associated with, I guess, a working class alternative look. So we've talked about kind of like subcultures and countercultures yes. um, that are different to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. but they also come from the kink and leather scene yeah um and I think that's what Rob was doing um yeah. he was kind of putting all the stuff that he loved that does oh. come from this kind of gay scene yes, into because... into heavy metal oh god who's the art there's an artist that is I think from around about the 80s really famous for these illustrations of what we would probably call like beefcake mm-hmm. that were very much like heavily working class so it was always like beefy guys in like denim in like overalls in in leather and it was that like on the one hand super hyper masculine like there would often be muscle cars and things like that but also like leather and like so on the one hand 
so camp and like so obviously homoerotic but super super hyper masculine and people didn't realize that this was counterculture and this was queer because Mm -hmm. it was so hyper masculine and I cannot remember what the name of the artist is if I remember I will I will look it up and I'll put it in the in the notes but I think I think like this is me assuming but there must have been a connection between those two things because the aesthetic of Judas Priest and the aesthetic of that artist and it was such a huge thing in like queer culture and subculture and I know for a fact and William Hughes has talked about this that it had a huge impact on like 80s queer gothic absolutely yeah and and I think that's exactly what you know Judas Priest is drawing on and and you know I think the rest we can say this comes from from Rob like Rob Halford um Mm -hmm. I think the other guys in the band didn't really know that he was gay um and they just really liked the aesthetic because they thought it looked cool and like yes very manly and like yes it's very manly but in a very masculine very homoerotic way and oh I'm forgetting I'm forgetting the title of the of the film but there's a new film on Netflix that's about heavy metal and it's like a school kind of like film where it ends up being like a battle of the bands and it has the guy it has one of the kids from I think from from it starring in it okay um but basically there's a bit in it where you know they're in their basement and the the girl there's a girl that that plays one of the instruments it's just like heavy metal is really gay and they just have like a cut to all of the posters that are on on the wall and they're just of men in all of these like denim and leather (laughs) and it's like yeah like and and this is I think this is really important because I think gothic and gothic spaces and and things that are influenced by gothic are always in that kind of area of of counterculture or going against the mainstream where people or identities that are othered are are always welcome Um, and even if you don't think consciously that they are they are and they they're always there and they're always present and you know I think Judas Priest is such a good band to look at for that because they're so undeniably camp and queer and also so metal and so manly and I mean that in all the kind of like ways of that of that word I'm pretty I mean I might be wrong but I'm pretty sure that one of the YMCA um is it them called men at work I can't remember what the actual band are but obviously their like costumes are all supposed to be these like iconic queer kind of like stereotypes and I'm pretty sure one of them is based on Halford like one of them is supposed to be like Judas Priest um so it's not like people weren't picking up on this but it is so interesting to think like yeah actually loads of people didn't realize and it was influencing pop as well I mean when you look at 80s pop like this is 70s heavy metal like look at George Michael look at like the way that people were embracing exactly like it was having such a huge impact George Michael's another really good example though because so many people didn't know that he was gay and I mean again you look back at Wham and you're like how do people not know but (laughs) I think it's just that especially especially in the 70s and the 80s this kind of stuff was seen by people outside of those communities as just being very fun or manly (laughs) And, and it is, um, yeah. but just in a, in a slightly different way. But yeah, so Judas Priest is undeniably hell-bent for leather, yep. <laughs> which is another one of their songs. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Um, and I want to have a, another look at one of, their, one of their songs and look at the homoerotic narrative um, in their song, A Touch of Evil, um, because I think we can see the kind of the homoerotic balanced with the satanic and the occult. 
Um, so now would be another time if you want to go and listen to the actual song rather than me just reading lyrics, pause here <laughs> and go and listen to Judas Priest, A Touch of Evil, and then come back. Because I, I again, I'm not going to try and uh, replicate Rob Halford's powerful operatic voice. I'm just going to read the lyrics. So go and do that if you want to. If not, I'm just going to read the lyrics for you. Future Lauren um, and Future Mary will put the links maybe. To I, they'll, they'll be somewhere. They'll be somewhere. <laughs> but okay, so this is some of the lyrics from A Touch of Evil. Arousing me now with a sense of desire. Possessing my soul till my body's on fire. A dark angel of sin, praying deep from within. Come take me in, you're possessing me. In the night, come to me, you know I want your touch of evil. In the night, please set me free. I can't resist a touch of evil. Dante Gabriel Rossetti wishes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I think, yeah, you have basically this really gothic narrative of Satan and sin to describe homoerotic desire. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what it's doing is it's subverting those tropes to make them undeniably sexy and sensual. Like, I deny you to listen to that song and not think that, wow, this is like orgasmic or like this Mm -hmm. is basically a song about sexual desire and it's very again so it's matched with the kind of the gothic excess of of Halford's amazing voice and the guitars and and it really takes you to some heights and but kind of like re-embodying the idea of the demon lover as well yeah Um, yeah 100% you know really popular poetic convention particularly post-Napoleonic of um, I mean, it happens in it happens in poetry and prose, but there was this real popular trend of you know, imagining these demonic, otherworldly, devilish, preternatural, supernatural, or slightly, you know, often human, but with a, a touch of something lovers and the experience of desire for these lovers. And this is kind of picking that up and putting it to music in a way that reinterprets it but also is is almost exactly the same like it's the same vibe (laughs) yeah like 100% and the other thing that I was thinking of in terms of that whole kind of like demon lover thing is what do we think of when we think about Satan and queer desire now and I'm thinking specifically you know little Nas X yeah Yeah, exactly and the same thing I was like this is so cool like coming by your name this is like you know thinking about that video and how much panic Montero brought out but that's because we've moved away from like just hypermasculinity to hypermasculinity being objectively the queer desire like this that probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for heavy mm. metal 70s yeah 100% and and I think that it is it's always important to realize that you know the, the like queer narratives and and I mean, for us, we're interested in gothic queer narratives. They exist everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not just in heavy metal. But I do think that, yeah, like specifically in the 70s and the 80s, like people like Rob Halford, um, who today is like really vocal about, you know, his 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 gay identity. I think it's really important to see the the the, the strides that they did, mm-hmm. I, I guess, and, and the the amazing work that they did um, with songs like A Touch of Evil, which is just such a great song. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would... If, if you haven't listened to any Judas Priest before, I would go and listen to that song because it's great. Yeah, so that's basically a little bit of Black Sabbath and a little bit of Judas Priest. Um, and there's obviously like a lot 
more that's going on in the 60s and the 70s but um I just wanted to focus on those two because I think you can't talk about the beginnings of you know heavy metal especially it's gothic beginnings without Black Sabbath and I also just think Judas Priest are just so mm-hmm. fabulous and a really interesting kind of counterpart to that and um, but before we move on I want to briefly talk about why is it called metal so right. why is heavy metal called metal so do you have any ideas for this so I so I don't know if this is true I have always assumed that it was something to do with it's like working class origins yes because so like like I'm where I'm from like everyone was mm-hmm. steel miners and, and I've always assumed particularly because like the Birmingham connections because I didn't mm-hmm. know Ozzy from Birmingham but I did you can't not know that Ozzy's from Birmingham <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> vocal literally it's in his voice I always assumed that it's called heavy metal because it came out of that working class mining steel working community and I don't know if that is the case you are absolutely on the money so yeah basically like school one for inherited memory (laughs) absolutely yeah so in in the 1970s like there were a lot of metal bands but also a lot of metal fans that were from like working working class cities in the UK and across the world as well but specifically like the industrial north Mm -hmm. um and and like Birmingham so here and and as you said there were iron and coal mines there were smelting and forging and, and auto manufacturing and so like metal works in particular became a kind of like physical representation of the yeah. genre. And it's also like a symbol of music um, and the people railing against the wealthy elite. So did you know that Tony Iommi, so the guitarist from Black Sabbath, actually worked in a sheet metal factory? I didn't, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. Because that was pretty much the type of job that was available. Exactly. Like- and did you know that he actually had an accident in this sheet metal factory? Um, where he lost the, the tops, um, like the tips of his middle and right fingers on it, the middle and ring finger on his right hand. I remember reading about him having had lost them. I did not know that that was why. Yeah. So he 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 basically has this this injury on his hands as a result of working in a metal factory, and that absolutely like influenced the mm-hmm. way that he played. I was gonna say um, that's what I remember is it yeah. Be, you know when you have to do <laughs> when you have to do like your level five guitar exam (laughs) yeah and it was like the origins of types of music and I remember it saying like one of the reasons he played the way that he played is because yeah that accident so yeah so one of the things for Black Sabbath was um Tony Iommi would tune the guitar lower which basically meant that it's easier it was easier for him to bend the strings Mm -hmm. um because because of his injuries but what that meant was you had like this very different heavier sound so yeah it's it's a it's a lot Tony Iommi and his specific kind of playing sounds but it's also just in general like the kind of like areas and the working class areas and you see this as well in in America but specifically in 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 the UK like Birmingham is so important to like the creation of of heavy metal I just I just think that's really interesting and I just say that I hope the people of Birmingham appreciate my respect that I have managed to get through this entire discussion without doing a bad impression of a Birmingham accent (laughs) <laughs> here, here is your chance now because we're going to oh, move on I don't want I don't want people to get mad at me okay well, every fiber of my being wants to do it but I'm not going to do it I'm going to I'm going to be respectful this time I think that's very that's very grown up of you thank you, thank you. I'm a mature adult. <laughs> um and on that note I guess last chance last chance no 
no okay so on that chance then we're gonna move away from the planet origins and look into some of its developments which means that we're going to get into the 80s yay yeah so what do you know about 80s metal um i know that it's very performative mm-hmm. that you get bands like din Lizzy and kiss that it's very there's like a very clear aesthetic that there's lots of shrub genres I think of things like rock operas and narratives and Mm -hmm. yeah characters as well um yeah Yeah. I think of yeah I think now as well I think of I think of of Thor Ragnarok because of great use (laughs) of immigrant song uh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I think when I think 80s I think um a lot of very performative metatextual big sounds big hair <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah yeah lots of denim lots of patches <laughs> um, that's what I think of when I think of 80s metal yeah amazing yeah again you're you're so on the money like you, I think you know a lot more about metal than, than maybe you think. But, I think um, it's one of those things that I have absorbed by osmos- like via ob- osmosis. Like, yeah. No, yeah. it wasn't my thing as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like I was much more into like, I liked punk and I liked grunge. Like I wasn't as in stuff, but I liked stuff like Rush and mm-hmm. Early Genesis, which has a very, the Early Genesis, like I know what I like in your wardrobe, reminds me often of, like the early Black Sabbath stuff, because there's that very haunting, weird, unsettling vocal to it. And even though the stuff I liked is more on the kind of either like punk into grunge or pop side of things, like Rush is mm-hmm. very operatic yeah. and, and kind of melodic, it was still all running parallel to each other. And I think like I have absorbed as a teenager all of this knowledge. I'd not really thought about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I always think that's really interesting about metal because I think a lot of people think that metal is just like um, heavy stuff or solos or screaming. Um, but actually, like, metal's really aware of everything else that that's going on in, yeah. in the music scene in general. And sometimes that means that it's saying, that's, we don't like that, we're going to do something completely different. But other times it's like, oh, that thing's really interesting. I'm going to take this and work yeah. it into... Well, into- my thing I'm which is the other thing I'm thinking of because I'm fairly sure you're going to talk about it later on but yeah when I also think metal I think of a genre that appropriates and mm-hmm. retools a lot of other genres like yeah. rap and opera and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah yeah like pop like and like yeah. particularly like electro and stuff like that like, oh yeah what well, yeah 100 we'll leave that for yeah. like part three <laughs> but yeah but, so, so yeah. I guess I guess that's a really good way like thinking about that kind of appropriation and how appropriation has always been important from its kind of origins and into its kind of developments. So the 80s saw like a lot of different subgenres of metal. So it's now an established thing. And mm-hmm. people are trying to think, well, what kind of metal do I do I want to do? And because, you know, like all things gothic, it just keeps snowballing and snowballing and spawning new concepts and new trends. Such a mutant. So in America, we see two kind of key trends, which are glam metal and thrash yes. and in Britain what we see is a, what's known as the new wave of British metal so we'll talk about that one first and technically this this new wave of British metal started in the mid-1970s with bands like Iron Maiden, Motorhead and Def Leppard uh, and like the original wave 
in the 60s and the 70s, a lot of the musicians and fans of the new wave were working class. And especially after Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party were elected in <laughs> 1979, like a lot of these bands started to respond Polit- mm-hmm. like to, to the kind of the rise of Thatcherism and social unrest in their songs. So rebellion against the elite was like a really important theme. But while the punk scene kind of encapsulated violent rebellion and sometimes anarchism, the new wave offered a kind of fun alternative um, of community, but also kind of escapist and fantasy themes. Um, yeah. And that, again, is where we get a lot of kind of gothic in that kind of mm-hmm. um, escapism and, and those specific kind of like you, you said, narratives and storytelling. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas punk at the time is very it's just like oh I'm so yeah, angry yeah. about everything and everything is and I think infuriating and I think there are some of the some of some of like the big punk bands I think when we look at them now we can think were you actually punk or were you just reactionary so I'm thinking specifically yeah. of like the Sex Pistols and how thinking, some of them are kind of like you know pro-Trump now and it's like well that's not very punk you were just being a reactionary but there are obviously like you know punk bands that that are into that kind of anarchism and 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 that that kind of thing but this is something a little bit different and another key band uh, well another key in aspect of this is masculinity was really important and so was male bonding mm-hmm. um now there were women in metal both as fans and as musicians um, and one of my favorite metal bands is actually girl school uh, which is the longest running all-female rock band amazing yeah um and girl school had a long-running collaboration with a really famous band um in this wave and i want to know do you know who they collaborated with no so girl school had a, a really long collaboration with Motorhead. No way! Yes, um, and they did a kind of um, little EP called Motorhead Girl School, yeah. <laughs> uh, where the, um, they have a song called Running With The Devil, and they also sung each other's songs, um, and they went on tour together, um, which I just think is really great, and, and Girl School's like, songs are also really, really good. But for the most part, a lot of these bands were, were, it's were very men. masculine. Very, like, yeah. And I think there's a strong argument for transness at this point because of how performative it is. Oh yeah, but yeah. It's a super mass. Like as a as a masculinity scholar, mm-hmm. this is a period where you look at and it's like, yeah, this is very. And the hyper masculinity, as we said, often becomes very camp. But yeah, it's very male dominated at this point in time as a as a mainstream within the counterculture. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a way like you could you could go you could go to watch bands um with your with your favorite men friends <laughs> sorry <I> just <laughs> I was gonna say with your favorite men but you know I mean I guess that kind of works but you know or you could go <laughs> how, how do men socialize I don't know I'm not me and a few of my favorite men friends <laughs> we go to the club and we watch a band but you could go to like music nights or festivals yeah. or other kinds of things and and, and meet other men in a, in a kind of homosocial way not necessarily in a, in a queer way although you know as as we we you know said with Jesus Priest there is always that kind of queer um, well, element and is, strand running running through this it. is kind of where like the mosh pit and stuff comes from as well like that's a very masculine homosocial mm. thing that has developed this kind of like outlet of communal violence in a way that you know it has rules and you're supposed to look after each other but the it's you know it's essentially fight club you you run around in a circle and kick the shit out of each other uh, yeah and and I I have been 
adjacent to <laughs> mosh adjacent a lot of mosh pits over <laughs> the years I actually really like them it's one you of love my mosh. it's one of my I favorite like to things stand to the side and watch the mosh pit <laughs> yeah I I like I like being that close because I I feel like it's a nice way to feel like a kind of community but yeah exactly what you said there are rules and you know I always feel safe when I'm in a metal crowd because I know that if somebody falls over I've and I've seen it over and over again people will stop stop the mosh and they'll they will help people up if somebody loses their glasses people will try and find them on the floor and if somebody feels you know uncomfortable or wants to leave people will either you know whether it's via crowd surfing or, or by letting somebody out so it is this kind of like I guess consent's really important here like we're we're all consenting to this kind of what looks like a really violent thing um, <laughs> where people are just running around a running nice, into each other healthy expression but it is um, it's, it's a it's a healthy it outlet um, let me joke but that the, <laughs> the, the idea of it is but it you know it does come from this very mm masculine tradition of the 80s yeah 100 so so you have male bonding on the one side and then on the other side you have um all of these kind of stories about the occult and fantasy with links to science fiction and horror mm-hmm. narratives so again that kind of where are people getting their inspiration from so obviously black sabbath drew on um a lot of horror films and, mm-hmm. and horror books um, and so do, and, and that kind of keeps happening so to focus on one band then i want to talk about Iron Maiden yay um who you know I mean the name Iron Maiden is is a very gothic name anyway you know it's (laughs) my favorite thing about Iron Maidens is that they weren't real (laughs) I know but that's so gothic isn't it it's so gothic this is my this is my party fact I'm always like did you know that Iron Maiden (laughs) never actually uses torture device they're just like like a folktale but then but then people did start making them because people started thinking about them which as a name for a band just makes it even more gothic because it's not actually, you know, they're not called like the, the Gibbler or like an Oubliette. They're called Iron Maiden, which is a thing that, you know, is part of this mythology of the Inquisition that never actually existed, but then people didn't actually start making them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I always love that too. I love the fact that it is based on a fake torture device. But yeah, okay, so... Um, That's a weird thing to get excited about. <laughs> it is, isn't it? That's um, a question. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving swiftly on. So, okay, Iron Maiden were formed in East London uh-huh. in 1975. But they're probably most well-known for their um, lead singer, Bruce Dickinson, who joined the band in 1981. And Iron Maiden's third album, The Number of the Beast, which was released in 1982, basically catapulted them into success and established them as pioneers of the new wave, but also one of the most important bands in metal of all time. So they recently, I mean, even now, they just had an album that came out and they've been touring and they're still going, they're still going strong. But it's what happened in the 80s that really cemented that. Um, and just as, I mean, the number of the beast has to date sold almost 20 million copies worldwide. I feel like this is probably the first song that we're mentioning where people might go and listen to it thinking they've never heard it and realise they have. Yeah. I feel like you can't not have at some point heard this song. Like it, it permeates everywhere because of that refrain. Like I'm not, again, also not going to attempt to sing it. Like, <laughs> well, again, yeah, like. 
Bruce Dickinson has really powerful vocals um, and brings a kind of opera kind of esque style, which is really interesting. I think there are a lot of bands in metal where where the vocal the vocalists have these powerful vocals, oh. and it's like, listen, you know, am I at a metal gig or am I at an opera? You know, it's 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 difficult to distinguish sometimes but yeah this band so this album so we're going to focus on this album for a little bit it basically encapsulates all the themes and aesthetics and and the musical tones that that we can think about when we think about Iron Maiden and it also you know shows how the band is gothic so you have heavy guitar harmonics and a kind of galloping rhythmic style of guitar and then you also have Bruce Dickinson's like just insane energy and vocals and the themes of the songs in this album but you know this album is very kind of representative they're inspired by literature history mythology yeah. and also horror films so the title track of the album which is also called the number of the beast was inspired by a nightmare that bassist steve harris had and he had this nightmare after watching the second omen film oh of course so yeah so again you have this kind of like the importance of watching horror films and consuming kind of like horror literature and horror narratives but Mm -hmm. also the importance of dreams in that kind of creative process so dreams as harbingers or as omens of supernatural narratives um are really important um so again if you want to pause here go and listen to this song or maybe link it somewhere it's the number of the beast you can go and do that and and listen to Bruce Dickinson's beautiful beautiful vocals um and and hear that or you can stay here and i will read them to you (laughs) (laughs) do both both. yeah okay just what i saw in my old dreams were they reflections of my warped mind staring back at me because in my dreams it's always there the evil face that twists my mind and brings me to despair night was black was no use holding back because i just had to see was someone watching me? In the mist, dark figures move and twist. Was all this for real or just some kind of hell? 666, the number of the beast, hell and fire was spawned to be released. <laughs> That's been like in the back of my mind the whole time like that. Yeah, that, re- that refrain. <laughs> that refrain is going. It's very catchy, it gets in my head all so the time. So catchy, it gets stuck in your head. What's just occurred to me, I've just double checked the dates. I forgot that this is at the same time as War of the Worlds and the Alan Parsons project doing Poe. So like you also have those two. Mm-hmm. So like I think the 76 is when they do the Alan Parsons project, which is if you guys are not familiar with, is this it's one of my like things I always put it on at like uh, our events and stuff because I love it. But it's a like rock opera version of Poe's short stories that I love. And then Jeffrey Wayne's War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. opera which is amazing is 1978 so these there's this like big traditional all of a sudden for these like huge literature inspired sci-fi horror inspired yeah a- like absolutely narrative. it's it's very much go big or go home like yeah. in, in terms of everything the, oh yeah the, the aesthetics the set design the story the the vocals everything it, it's go big or, or go home frankly mm-hmm. um but yeah so I think with this song specifically, and also some of the other songs, you can see why the band has so often been accused of Satanism, <laughs> which is, again, something that crops up a lot with heavy metal bands. And, you know, in response to the album, there were public burnings of the album that were organised by religious groups. And I just think it's really interesting because if you listen to the song, you can see that it that Satan's the bad guy. 
yeah it's not pro-satan this track also features a spoken introduction um which quotes passages from the book of revelation so again you can see how it's inspired by the omen and interestingly the band had hoped to get horror icon vincent price to read this passage but his costs were too high and he <laughs> wanted to charge like 25k to oh read God. to read a bit um and so <laughs> do you want to know who they got instead yes they do so they got actor Barry Clayton, who is the narrator in the Count Dracula series. Yes! Oh yes! my god! Mary, you know how I feel about Count Dracula. <laughs> Count yeah. Dracula is my favourite Dracula adaptation. It's so fabulous. I just love oh this. God, I, I just love it. Count Dracula. Did yeah. it I'm going to double check this, but oh my god, I love Count Dracula. That is fantastic. <laughs> Oh, that is just so campus. <laughs> oh, amazing, amazing. That is yeah. just perfect. I love that. I'm very happy to know this. But yeah, on the one hand, I think, oh, it would have been amazing if they had got Vincent Price. And, you know, that would have been really good, like, just in terms of, like, the crossover of, like, horror and and metal but actually I think it's I love that they have that they have like Barry Clayton because and and it and again go and listen to the introduction to song and it's it's creepy and it just works um it really so, sets that kind of like I creepy thought so. time. Barry Clayton was also the voiceover for the weekend world which was like <laughs> a political like very, <laughs> yeah it was really dour like it was on I think it was on like London television or something but yeah it was a very like <laughs> like a sort of like political like the weekend world which is hilarious but yeah oh my god can't talk you well. what an icon <laughs> exactly what an icon um, now I'm just imagining count there needs to be a count docula and eddie netflix cartoon we will get to eddie in a little bit but yeah so other tracks on the album include um children of the damned which is a song based on the british sci-fi horror films village of the damned and then children of the damned which were adaptations of john Wyndon's novel the midwich cuckoos which has which recently getting... been adapted yes. adapted to a tv series on sky yeah. um, which is like it's like a modern adaptation isn't it i'm mm. i'm tentatively excited um, yeah yeah about the cookies. Um, but if you can't wait for it to come out or if you you don't have access to it yet just go and listen to Iron Maiden's Children of the Dam because that's inspired by the same source material also if you're an X-Men fan this is where the name of the Emma Frost clones the Stepford Cuckoos they are named after yeah. the Stepford Wives and the Midwich Cuckoos yeah yeah fun fact very fun fact fans. <laughs> um so this album also featured artwork by Derek Riggs, with its cover depicting the band's mascot, yeah. Eddie. So Eddie in this picture is controlling Satan like a puppet, but Satan is also controlling a smaller version of Eddie um, in a similar way. So you have this kind of who's controlling who um, and this whole idea of, you know, very satanic and, and all of that kind of thing. But now, obviously, Lauren, you know who Eddie is, but some people might be thinking, wait, mascot? Eddie? Who the heck is Eddie? What? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah in the 80s almost every other metal band had a mascot which is basically a figure that they used to encapsulate and represent their image and it was also used on like their artwork and merchandise so they'd have it on their kind of album covers but then they'd also start selling like pins and t-shirts and these big patches that you could like pin or sew onto the patches back of the big post all, all that kind of all that kind of stuff 
and they'd also feature in their kind of live shows so the kind of like the set pieces would would heavily feature their their kind of mascot that's like a late I mean not I don't think in the 80s but like in the 2000s didn't they travel with that huge Eddie puppet oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah the the kind of development of Eddie has been really really interesting Motorhead also had a kind of mascot or a logo yeah so them their logo is known as Snaggletooth <laughs> and it's basically designed to be a mix of human and animal skulls which I think is just really interesting but Iron Maiden's Eddie also known as Eddie the Head or just Ed which reflects his he kind of basically started as a kind of papier-mâché mask skull, yeah. skull mask that they would call the Ed which is where you get Eddie from. Probably the most well-known and successful of, of any kind of metal mascot. Um, and there are loads and, and, you know, over the course of this kind of this video and then the, the part, part two and everything, we'll, we'll go into more mascots. But Eddie is the kind of the most well-known, I guess. He appears on pretty much most of their albums. Um, and he also, yeah, prominently stars in their live shows as a massive kind of puppet um, sort of big figure. Um, so again, Very they're... Like lanky and yeah spindly. he's very gothic as a kind of gothic monster so eddie is continually resurrected and reincarnated and he's appeared as a zombie as an undertaker as an egyptian pharaoh as a cyborg at one point he's just got half a body and it's, there's just so he's many different soldier. there's so many different variations <laughs> yeah there's even there's even one where uh, he's stand eddie is standing over the uh corpse of uh, a British Prime Minister. <laughs> There's so many to choose from. Did you know though, <laughs> did you know that you can get an Eddie Funko Pop? Yeah. Yeah. Ed- Eddie's everywhere and Eddie's great. <laughs> so if if you have any kind of favorite like Eddie incarnations, then do let us know in the comments because I, I think Eddie is great. And the more Eddie that we can share, the better. But yeah, so that's Iron Maiden. A little, little snapshot just in, you know, a, a British new wave through one band and, 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 and one album. For now, what I want to do is kind of briefly take us across the pond to talk about some of the gothic developments in American heavy metal. Awesome. So you mentioned Kiss a little bit. Yes. Ago. And uh, yeah, so inspired by Kiss and also Alice Cooper, who, who were kind of like in coming up in the 70s. In the 80s, glam metal saw massive mainstream success and if you are thinking what on earth is glam metal think catchy pop hooks it's exactly what it sounds like catchy riffs (laughs) and flashy colorful over-the-top glam aesthetics of big hair face makeup and tight clothes hence its alternative name hair metal so you know think 80s workout video and big hair or, you know, all the weird and wonderful trends in 80s fashion and big hair or think like men on stage in, in full makeup, whether that be the kind of kiss kind of um, face paint or, you know, more kind of like drag inspired makeup. So we can think about bands like Quiet Riot, Motley Crue and Twisted Sister, love Twisted Sister. And a lot of glam metal songs also focus on women, romance and sex. And there were also a lot of slow emotional ballads. So including one of my favourites, which is Cinderella's You Don't Know What You've Got Till It's Gone, which is just so over the top, emotional and dramatic. Well, um, it's kind of coming at the same time as like power ballad. So you've got exactly like, obviously people like Meatloaf that are kind mm. of, you know, and but even like 
you know, like Celine Dion and like, and Roxette, like he's coming at the same time. And, and I always think of like hair metal and glam metal being sort of the other side of the coin to bands like Spandau Ballet and Duran yeah. Duran, <laughs> like on the pop scene, because they were also doing these very, it's all the like, you know, mist in the videos and lots of eyeliner and yeah. like, they're kind of, even though it's two very different sounds in a way, it it's very much coming in on like the same spectrum. This very produced, very aesthetic, very haunting in that kind of, I mean, that's why they call the new romantics new romantics, because it is trying to re-embody Keats and Shelley um, and, and that kind of like gothic romantic style. And then glam metal is kind of doing the same thing, but on the camp, like Walpolean gothic side of it, that's like, it's almost, it, it's almost like if Matthew Lewis was dropped into the 80s and was told to make a band I feel like he would have been a glam rocker <laughs> oh yeah 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 totally with with the with the it's just so extra like so extra so extra so yeah that's obviously like glam metal but you might be thinking how is that gothic I mean I think we have kind of talked about it a little bit with that kind of that excess especially in relation to like the aesthetics the -hmm. theatricality the campness um, and the emotional resonance of its lyrics but there's also a kind of revival of the occult as well Um, so the occult is everywhere and these kinds of you know gothic kind of hints to to the satanic and all those kinds of things so Motley Crue formed in Los Angeles 1981 and their second studio album is titled Shout at the Devil and um, the band also incorporated occult symbolism, like the pentagram, into their live shows, which again led to cries of Satanism from Christian. Satanic life. panic, peeps. Yep. And the track Bastard was later targeted by Tipper Gore, wife of Al Gore, and the Parents Music Resource Centre in their ah. crusade against music they deemed to be disturbing and inappropriate for children. And this crusade led to the introduction of the explicit content warning on albums. So if you wonder why there's that little sticker on on some of the albums that you see, it's because of Tipper Gore and this kind of crusade against musical artists, including heavy metal artists like Motley Crue, but also like Twisted Sister. And okay, so Dee Snider basically rejects that Twisted Sister is a glam metal band, but I think that we can consider them as, as one or at least adjacent to one. So I mean, the, look at them. <laughs> this is the thing. So, so Twisted Sister formed in 1972, um, but they were obviously around for, for, for a long time and especially in the 80s. And they're considered to be glam metal largely due to their use of makeup and in particular Dee Snider's um, iconic look. Dee Snider is great. I love him. And, and please go and Google or maybe I'll put in an image here somewhere of 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 his kind of like stage look but it's fabulous and he said that he actually prefers the term hid metal because he says that his band is hideous yeah his makeup was was like consciously bad wasn't it compared to like yeah yeah kiss something like that so he said I don't think Twisted Sister is glam because that implies glamour and we're not glamorous we should be called hid because we're hideous and yeah, so throughout their song lyrics and theatrical performances and their hideous looks, they basically embrace and welcome the weird. 
And Snyder's actually kind of gone on um, recently to talk about the similarities between his look and drag queens. Um, yeah. So you get that kind yeah, of, um, that extra kind of gender performativity. Yeah. And Dee Snyder is, is a Christian and, I, I, you know, he, he's, in a, he's in a heterosexual marriage. So we, for him, this is just a kind of like gender performa- performativity like, like drag. And he said, you know, in relation to Drew Paul's drag, drag race, that I think some of them definitely studied what I did in the 80s. And I think, again, like, go and go and have a look at Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister, because yeah. you can absolutely put up a picture of Twisted well, yeah, Sister and someone like, from RuPaul. And like the big blue, he mm. would be like the big blue eye makeup. And then like, I mean, like the big, it was like red, what I would think of as contour yeah like, yeah with them, like, the big hair and stuff and it is very drag in in a positive way it's kind of like poking fun a little bit at the excess of the glam bands that were taking themselves very seriously but the gender performativity always seemed very genuine and like a real kind of you know positive exploration and expression rather than like camp a camp satire in a good way <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I and and I think again, like it's doing something very different to Judas Brief, but I think it's just showing how you know heavy metal does embrace everything from from the weird to the queer, whatever whatever kind of gender or, or sexuality or any kind of identity you have, there's always a there's always a place for you in metal, um, which I think you know sometimes people either don't realize that about metal or sometimes you do get fans that think that it's just very hyper masculine and and that kind of thing but these kinds of queer spaces have been not just present but so important throughout heavy metal yes and that I think maybe that's a conversation we have like at the end of part three but my experience of metal as a teenager was very much people taking it very Mm. seriously because they didn't fully understand the complexity and the history of it and that's always the danger and I think you get this with horror and gothic as well that it can come across straight Mm -hmm. in multiple senses of the word and you don't get the subversion you don't get all the stuff and and that then often will lead to a certain type of fandom but it's like Dracula, you know, I yeah. mean, Dracula, I think people look at and they're like, oh, yeah, it's like this band of men being being men with their men friends, you know, <laughs> protecting women. And it's like, one, this is a very homosocial text. It's it's about male bonding and friendships. But also there is a queer undertone there. Um, and there's also that kind of that that idea of, of the other um, and the idea that even before she's a vampire, Lucy says, I want all three men. And I think just I think that's just really interesting that you have these yeah. kinds of same things in in horror text, but also in heavy metal, where it may be on the surface they look you know really heteronormative, straight laced kind of way, but but yeah, they're not. Homosexuality, um, like it's such an important aspect, particularly when it comes to gothic. What's being performed and how is it being performed? Because once you get into performativity, it completely destabilizes everything and everything becomes gothic and everything becomes queer um, to kind of like massively generalize it but yeah I think it's it's funny isn't it I wonder if we forget how performative and excessive and camp consciously heavy metal is mm-hmm. as a kind of modern consumer because we're looking backwards instead of being contemporaneous to it 
Um, and there's elements now of like cliche and things like that and like stereotype, but yeah, hella performative. You don't get hair that big without like putting serious <laughs> effort into it. Like getting big hair is hard, man. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, big hair. And also like getting that getting that consistent makeup look. Mm. Like, you know, it's a lot of effort. But okay, I think I think on that queer weird note, we should round up for for part one. Obviously, we're not done with the 80s. We haven't got to thrash yet. We're so never done with the 80s. We're never done with the 80s. <laughs> Um, so our next, our next part in this kind of exploration, <laughs> exploration of the gothic history of heavy metal, we'll pick up with thrash. Um, so if you are really interested in why thrash metal is gothic, then stay tuned. Until next time. <laughs> but I hope that, you know, looking at the gothic origins and some of the kind of gothic in the 80s, you are starting to get an appreciation for why heavy metal is gothic. Yeah, it's, it's obvious, but it's not obvious all at the same time mm-hmm. yeah. well thank you everybody for tuning in or watching thank you mary for this wonderfully well-researched piece as ever we have been the Ghoul guides this has been the Ghoul guide association and in the meantime stay safe and stay spooky stay safe and stay spooky